Good evening. Good to see you guys. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 9. Now, as we've been working our way through Exodus, we have come to the, uh, the plagues. And uh, we saw the first six. Uh, finished that a couple weeks ago. Last week did something a little different. Uh, but this evening we want to get back in looking at the plagues. And tonight we start with the seventh plague, the plague of hail and fire. So in verse 13 we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, as we've already said, the, uh, this judgment begins the uh, third uh, cycle of judgments. These first nine come in uh, three cycles of three. And, and as they come in these three cycles of three, they increase in severity until uh, they lead up to the uh, last uh, plague, the tenth plague, which is the deadliest of them all, the death of the firstborn. Now, speaking through Moses, God proceeded to warn Pharaoh that he was about to receive the hardest blow yet. He said in verse 14, For at this time I will send all my plagues. Well, the idea is I'm going to send the full force of my plagues. So he is, God is ramping up now the severity, intensity of these judgments. And uh, the, these next three, seven, eight, and nine, uh, are going to be more severe than the previous ones. And they're going to be described in more detail. In fact, the seventh plague resulted in a great economic distress for the people of Egypt. And uh, once again, it was directed at the gods of Egypt. All of these plagues are directed at the gods of Egypt. Because Pharaoh and the Egyptians believed that because they were the strongest nation on the face of the earth, they must worship the strongest gods. That was the mentality back then. And the strongest nation worshiped the strongest gods. So God is teaching them that their worship of their gods is they're not the strongest gods. They're not even gods. We know that. But God is showing them, the people of Egypt, how powerless their gods are against the God of the Hebrews. Who is this God of the Hebrews that I should let them go to worship him? God's teaching Pharaoh uh, who he is. But again, the target is the gods of Egypt. One historian said, and I quote, Clearly the abilities of several Egyptian gods were again being challenged. Nut, the sky goddess, was not able to forestall the storm. And Osiris, the god of crop fertility, could not maintain the crops in this hailstorm, nor could Set, the storm god, hold back this storm. Just so you get an idea, all right? Verse 14, For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart, and on your servants, and on all your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 15, Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, speaking to Pharaoh now, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Uh, the Lord is basically telling Pharaoh through Moses that he could have simply destroyed the Egyptians, destroyed Pharaoh and all the Egyptians with some kind of a pandemic, like a bubonic plague. 
But instead he had spared Pharaoh and continued to use him in order to demonstrate his power and spread his fame throughout the earth. Verse 17. And of course, let me just say this. These were also, in a sense, uh, these judgments were a form of mercy. God said, look, I could wipe, I could have wiped you out in one fell swoop. I could have brought one pestilence on you and wiped you and the whole nation out. But I'm giving it, basically, let me tell you what the Lord's doing. He said, look, I'm giving you time after each plague to repent. This was the mercy of God. That he was brought a plague, gave them time to think about it and to repent. Brought another plague, gave them time to think about it and repent. God didn't bring them all at once because he wanted to show mercy. Wanted to show mercy. Now, verse 17, As yet you exalt yourself against me, my people, in that you will not let them go. So, Pharaoh, you're, you continue to harden your heart against me. You won't let my people go. Behold, tomorrow about this time I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home. Or if you don't bring them under the shelter of your roof, they're going to die. Uh, the next plague consisted of hail, fire, accompanied by thunder. Now, again, God in his mercy warned the Egyptians to take their livestock and themselves and get inside before this plague was poured out. Because if they didn't, they would die. They would die. You know, our God never brings judgment on a person or a people without first warning them to flee the wrath to come. Uh, very merciful that way. Uh, the, uh, the cattle in Egypt were usually outdoors from January to April. After April was too hot. And they, so they were brought under some kind of a shelter. But uh, this is happening in that time frame. The crops that were destroyed, this helps us to pinpoint what time of the year this was. The crops that were going to be destroyed by this plague of hail were the flax and the barley. Now, they were usually ready for harvest uh, in the spring, although right now it's about February or March. Now, the, um, the wheat and uh, the spelt were not destroyed. They were planted later, and then they were harvested later, so they were not affected. But verse 20, he who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh, and I have a hard time understanding who wouldn't have feared the Lord by this time. I mean, all the plagues, he has, he has poured out six plagues as of this point. You'd think that they would have got with the program. Said, we better listen to this God because he's pretty powerful. But those who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail, and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. 
you know, as we tell the, the people of our day that God's judgment is coming upon the whole world someday soon, all right, uh, that's part of our mission, uh, to tell people, look, God is about ready to judge this wicked, rebellious world. And we go out there and we tell them that this is going to happen and uh, they need to flee too and take refuge in Christ if they're going to be spared from this coming judgment. When we do that, we, are, we present people with really one of two options. They have one of two choices. First of all, they can believe what God is saying. They can get their lives right with Christ. They can come to him for safety and security, right? Or they can, you know, dismiss what God has said and take a, I'm going to wait and see approach, you know, I'm going to wait and see what happens approach, as many people have done. I, I've actually had numerous people tell me when I've witnessed to them and told them, look, you know, the tribulation period is coming, where God is going to judge this world. Now, it's going to end with Christ returning to establish his kingdom. But it's going to be a very, very difficult time, where God is going to pour out judgment after judgment, and many people will die. And the only way to escape that is right now to accept Christ and you'll be evacuated out of here when the rapture happens. Well, I don't know if I really believe that. I think I'll just wait and see what happens. Okay. Well, that's a very foolish thing to do. Very foolish thing to do. Because the Bible talks about a time yet future when the tribulation period does come. And... As God begins to ramp up his judgments, they start off kind of light and, uh, and less frequent, less intense, uh, like a woman who is entering into labor. But as Jesus used the imagery that as a woman then progresses in her labor, the labor pains become more intense, more frequent, until the child is born, right? And then she has peace. And Jesus likened that to the time that the tribulation period starts, beginning of the seven years, last seven years, and how the judgments of God start off less intense and space farther apart, again, giving people time to repent. As we move into the second half of the tribulation period, the judgments become more severe, more intense, more frequent, until finally, just before Jesus comes and the kingdom is birthed, they are coming one after another, one cosmic, cataclysmic judgment after another, and then Jesus returns. There won't be many people left on the face of the earth, though, when he comes back. Now, Jesus warned us. He said in Matthew 24, in fact, why don't you turn there? Matthew 24, is the Lord is talking about the time prior to entering into, I think, the last half of the seven years where things begin to really ramp up. Uh, we, we know that um, there are many who are preaching the gospel by this time. Uh, the world is not uh, without a witness. Uh, God sends after the rapture. Of course, there's no believers in the face of the earth. Every believer is gone, taken to heaven. And because God never leaves himself without a witness, we see two witnesses show up at the beginning of the last seven years. You can read Revelation 11, the two witnesses. Uh, they have a ministry that's very successful. They convert, no doubt among many others, 144,000 Jewish evangelists, kind of like 144,000 Paul the Apostles unleashed on the face of the earth. And they go about the face of the earth and preach the gospel to everybody, okay? Every, many are going to get saved. 
We see that from chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, where a great multitude is in heaven that cannot even be numbered, but they've been martyred for their faith, so it won't be without a price to pay in those days. You know, people say, I'm going to wait and see what happens. You know, if this Antichrist shows up, then I'll get serious and accept Christ. It's like, well, if you can't live for Jesus now in the age of grace, do you think you're going to be able to die for him then in the age of tribulation? Better to get saved now, okay? Uh, don't push the grace of God. But Jesus is saying that, look, even as it was in the days of Noah, Noah preached the, the, the good news for 120 years, but people didn't listen, all right? They went about their business. Uh, he said in Matthew 24, verse 37, but as it was in the days of Noah, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So just like it was before the worldwide flood of Noah's day, it's going to be the same way, the same mentality among so many before this next and final worldwide judgment coming before the kingdom is established. Verse 38, for as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, listen, the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now you read that and go, well, they were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage. There is nothing inherently sinful about any of that. The point Jesus is making is that the world was going about business as usual until the judgment came and took them by surprise. Didn't Paul warn us about this? He said there's coming a time when the world is going to be lulled into a false sense of peace, when the Antichrist comes and takes power. And when they say peace and safety, you know, finally we have our Messiah. The world is at peace. Utopia has arrived. Paul said, but when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction shall come upon them like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. It's just amazing that people can just harden their hearts and block out the truth. It's not that they don't know the truth. Pharaoh heard the truth. Pharaoh was warned over and over again. He hardened his heart. He thought it would never happen, maybe. He thought, I'm not going to listen to servants of a Hebrew God. Uh, that kind of thing is pride. And so God is humbling him through these plagues. But also, this is a little preview of what's coming on a worldwide scale uh, in the future. But back to Exodus 9, verse 27. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. I didn't sin any other time, but I've sinned this time. Okay, The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be, that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord, 
Then the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And that's the raining of fire is the idea. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. You read this and go, no, Pharaoh says, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, uh, and my people and I are wicked. You say, well, that's good. He's acknowledging his sin. Well, that is good, but he didn't do anything about it. He didn't change his mind. He didn't let Israel go. Look, confession is worthless unless it is coupled with repentance, which means a change, a change. You know, I've seen many people over the course of my ministry that confessed that the things they were involved in were sinful, and sometimes they'd even tell you it was flat-out wicked. And I would say to them, well, that's good that you acknowledge that. Now, come, let's pray to receive Christ. Turn completely from these things. You understand it's wickedness. You're living in sin. The next step is to repent, which means to turn around and begin to now move toward God, have a relationship with, with Him through His Son. And you know what many have said to me? Oh, pastor, it's, it's too late for me. You know, it, it's too late for me. I'm beyond hope. You know, God doesn't want me in his kingdom. You know, it, it's just that false sense of humility. I think that some people, it makes them feel better when they confess their sins. Not that they really want to change. They just feel, well, you know, I'm a good person because I recognize I'm a sinner. I, I'm acknowledging what I'm doing is wrong. Well, that's great. doesn't do anything, though, in the eyes of God with regard to forgiveness if you don't then repent, turn around, have a, what's the word, what the word repentance means, to have a change of mind. I'm going in the wrong direction. I need to turn around and start going toward God. That's the idea. The simple acknowledgement of wrongdoing is good, but not enough. Again, it must be coupled with action. or Otherwise, God cannot forgive those sins. Now, hear me out. There are people who acknowledge that what they're doing is wrong. They're involved with drugs. They're involved with pornography, something like that. They come to Jesus. They confess their sins. And in their heart, they really do want to change. And they begin to cry out to God for the strength to change. Even though the change doesn't happen immediately, what God is looking for is a heart that says, Lord, I do want to change. He's, what he's not looking for, what he rejects, is a person who says, well, I know I'm living in sin, so God, you know, I acknowledge that. But I have no desire, I have no intention of changing. Well, God says, then I have no intention of forgiving you. But if you come to me with a sincere heart, even if you're very weak in this area, but you want to change, I'll give you the grace to change. Just keep drawing close to me. And God does then forgive that person. Now that brings us to chapter 10, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine before him, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt. And my signs which I have done, my signs, the word signs is a word for miracles, and my miracles which I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Now, let me just say this quickly one more time, because we spent the entire week, last week, touching on this subject. 
Don't, again, because there's some new faces here, don't misinterpret what God is saying to Pharaoh or saying concerning Pharaoh. Pharaoh, again, was not a helpless puppet in the hands of God who hardened his heart against Pharaoh's will just so God could, you know, beat up on him some more and get glory through his life. God didn't force Pharaoh to do anything. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, as we have said last week, because primarily he didn't want to lose his workforce. The whole Egyptian economy was built on Hebrew slave labor to let them go, and he knew they weren't coming back. I probably, we're going to see he figured that out. So he didn't want to let them go. He didn't want to lose his labor force. It would have caused the Egyptian economy to crash. That's why he hardened his heart, among other reasons. So God did not force Pharaoh to do anything. God knew what Pharaoh was going to do in this situation. God knew that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart toward God. So what did God do? He simply put Pharaoh, he said last, we touched on this last week, I think verse 17 of chapter 9, for this reason I have raised you up to show myself strong through you. For this reason I have put you as king of Egypt. Because I knew that given the opportunity you would harden your heart you would not listen you would harden your heart and that through your hard heart i would be able to show myself strong through you not forcing him to do anything but simply saying pharaoh if this is what you have decided you want to harden your heart that's fine i'm going to harden it all the more so i can demonstrate through you how awesome i am not only to my own people but to the whole world pharaoh made his own choices and God used them to accomplish his divine purposes. But I like verse 2. That you may tell in the hearing of your son and your son's son's, son's son the mighty things I have done in Egypt. You know, it's important that we pass along to our children and our grandchildren a living faith, a heritage that we, whereby we teach them what God has done in history, the great things he has done, and also what he has done in our own lives personally, as we then share with them the things that God has done, it reinforces in their little minds, and they're sponges at a young age like that, it reinforces in their little mind that, you know, God is real. Because he has done things on the earth that we can look at, historical events and things. And my dad, my grandpa, they're telling me stories about things God has done in their lives. And I tell you what, when I get bigger, I want God to work in my life that way. It's a very important thing that while they're young, we communicate to them the awesomeness of our God. And that's what God is saying here, basically, to, uh, uh, through Moses. Pharaoh, I'm going to get glory from you one way or another. You won't give me glory willingly. I will take it from you by lifting you up and using you as an example. I, I will use your hard heart against you to teach people how awesome and powerful I really am. And of course, one plague probably wouldn't have stuck in the minds of people. So God sent 10 plagues. You say, well, did that stick in the minds of people in the future? Well, 500 years later, in the days of David, as we've been studying in 1 Samuel, I think it was chapter 4, the Philistines knew how powerful the God of Israel was. They even said, this is the God that did all those mighty works in bringing his people out of Egypt. So yeah, it stuck with them. Okay, it stuck with people. 
So we come now to the eighth plague, the plague of locusts, verse 3. So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me, or else, if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory, and they shall cover the face of the earth so that no one will be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of what is left which remains to you from the hail. And they shall eat every tree which grows up for you out of the field. They shall fill your houses. Oh, goodness. They shall fill your houses, the houses of all your servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither your fathers nor your fathers' fathers have seen. You ain't seen anything like this invasion of locusts. Your fathers, your father, nobody has seen anything like it uh, since the day that they were on the earth to this day. And he turned and went out from Pharaoh. It's all built around a question. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? And guys, that is the question that God poses to every human being. The Bible teaches in 1 Peter 5, verse 5, that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then it goes right after that to make the obvious application. Verse 6 of 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore in the sight of God, that he may lift you up, lift you up in the sense of save you and give you an inheritance in heaven as opposed to bring you down, literally, down into the lowest parts of the earth, Hades, and then eventually where Hades is cast into the lake of fire or hell, judgment, judgment. But um, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? One pastor, in response to this, said, and I quote, There are other ways that we could put it. How long will you live such a sinful lifestyle? How long will you destroy yourself and the people you love? How long will you put off the day of repentance? Just how long will it be? The author says, when Charles Spurgeon preached on this passage, he said to his congregation, forget Pharaoh and only think of yourself. Let the Lord Jesus Christ himself with the thorn-crowned head and the pierced hand stand by your pew and looking right down into your soul, say in this, say in his matchless tone of music, the music of the heart of love, how long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? End quote. And Spurgeon nailed it when he said, and I don't, no pun intended, when he said, look, imagine that Jesus with his, wearing his, crown of thorns his nail pierced hands is standing right next to your pew or chair and saying how long will you resist me how long will you refuse to humble yourself look what i've done for you i love you i've got your best interest at heart how long will you run from me and continue to follow in the devil's footsteps because if you do someday you're going to follow him all the way to the place I created for the devil and his angels. Hell, I didn't make hell for man, Jesus said. God didn't make hell for man. He made it for the devil and his angels. But if a person wants to follow the devil in his rebellion against God, he or she will follow him all the way to where the devil will spend eternity. Verse 7, Exodus 10, Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. 
that they may serve the God, uh, the, the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? I mean, Pharaoh, what are you waiting for? The whole land is in ruins. So Moses and Aaron were brought again, again to Pharaoh. And he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. Who are the ones that are going? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Uh, the uh, New Living Translation translates verses 10 and 11 a little more clearly. Pharaoh retorted, The Lord will certainly need to be with you if I let you take your little ones. I can see through your evil plan. Never, okay? Never. Only the men may go to worship the Lord, since that is what you requested. And Pharaoh threw them out of his presence. See, Pharaoh said the adults could go out of Egypt into the wilderness to worship the Lord, but their children couldn't go. You see, he saw their request as an evil plan, okay, to, to flee their bondage and to find freedom by just, you know, giving a pretense that they were going to go and worship God when in reality they were going to actually make a run for it and, you know, stop being slaves there in Egypt. So Pharaoh figured, well, look, uh, your God is forcing me to do this, but you know what? Only you adults go. The kids have to stay here. See, he saw them as a, an insurance policy, all right? That way the parents would have to come back. Well, Moses and the children of Israel refused that demand of Pharaoh, flat out refused it, okay? But let me say this, guys. Um, unfortunately, it seems that many Christian parents have done that very thing, done that very thing. They want to go and worship and serve the Lord. That's admirable. But they leave their kids in the world. They don't really encourage. Many Christian parents do not encourage their kids to come along with them to church and to get them involved in some kind of ministry, even from a young age. You know, I see parents who bring their kids to the uh, Cornerstone uh, homeless shelter. Uh, the, the times that we go there and uh, help their parents to uh, pass out the food for the homeless who are there at the shelter. And I, th I think to myself, that's a great thing to do. You're teaching your kids how to give back, first of all, but you're also teaching them that even at this young age, you're never too young to serve the Lord. The parents that don't really encourage their kids in this regard, and, and some parents, they, they love the Lord, Christian parents, of course, but so many other things come before God. Uh, we've talked about this, you know. Um, the kids can miss church for every activity and sporting event under the sun, and it just builds within them a, a, a mentality that says, you know, God is really not the issue. He's a little side issue. Maybe the, the frosting on the cake of life, a little salt in the soup, but not the main ingredient. And that's very sad. Very sad. We need to not expose our kids to the world, but get them, you know, serving the Lord, being close to the Lord. You know, one of the stories that I've always thought about when I think about this subject is the story of King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoshaphat was king of the southern kingdom of Judah at the same time King Ahab and his wife Jezebel were in power to the north in the northern kingdom where the ten tribes were called the kingdom of Israel, right? 
If you study the life of Jehoshaphat, he was really a good man. He was a good king. And uh, the Lord acknowledges Jehoshaphat was a good king. He loved the Lord and uh, was a righteous man. He had one flaw, though, that I, I can't really figure out. Never been able to really understand what was going on here. He liked to go up to the north and visit with King Ahab. Okay? He was friends with Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel, by the, by the scripture's own definition, were two of the most wicked people that ever ruled in Israel. Okay? Ahab was probably the most wicked, and she was probably the most wicked queen. Why a, a godly man like Jehoshaphat would want to spend time with an ungodly man like Ahab, I don't know. It seems that Jehoshaphat, though, was strong enough in his faith that he could spend time with Ahab and not uh, have it corrupt him in his walk with God. The problem was he, on many occasions, brought with him his young son Jehoram to go with him up to Israel to uh, see King Ahab. Whereas Jehoshaphat was strong enough to see all the sinful things going on there. You know, there are people who can visit Las Vegas, you know, Christians who can drive through it and, or have a meal there and it not affect them. Some people get in there and it just sucks them into the lifestyle. Where Jehoshaphat was strong enough to resist the evil temptations of Israel, his son Jehoram wasn't. And to make matters worse, when the time came for Jehoram to take a wife, his father married him to the daughter of Ahab. When he took the throne, the first thing he did was to kill all his brothers. So he killed all of his father's sons to take away any competition, any threat to his throne. Jehoshaphat, his uh, lack of judgment cost him his entire family. I, I have seen men and women, fathers and mothers, who have sacrificed their kids, sending them to very godless colleges where they lose their faith and get entrenched in the world, you know? And they come away from that experience and uh, the parents are heartbroken that their child no longer really loves the Lord and wants to walk with the Lord. Well, you know, you, you've let them live in Israel, you know? You've let them or her live in a situation where the world has greatly influenced them and the result was that they have now become a part of the world very sad but back in exodus 10 verse 12 then the lord said to moses stretch out your hand over the land of egypt for the locusts that they may come upon the land of egypt and uh, eat every herb of the land all that the hail has left so Moses stretched out his rod over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind on the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. And the locusts went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on all the territory of Egypt. And they were very severe. Previously, there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth, so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. The locust is often used in Scripture as a tool of judgment. As a tool of judgment. The prophet Joel 
mentions a time where God brought locusts upon the land as a judgment for their wickedness. And the locusts destroyed everything. But God said to them, if you will return to me, if you will repent, I will restore the years the locusts have eaten, giving them hope for the future. So Joel talks about this previous time God brought locusts. But then all of a sudden he begins to prophesy about a future time. Turn to Joel chapter 2. Hey, you're going to want to read Joel because this, a lot of it is God prophesying through Joel about what is coming in the day of the Lord. Listen to this description of these locusts. And I'll tell you up front, I don't believe they are ordinary locusts. This is a plague that is coming during the tribulation period. Verse 1, blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning clouds spread over the mountains. A people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them even for many successive generations. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like swift sea steeds, so they run. With a noise like chariots over the mountain tops, they leap like the noise of a flaming fire that devours the stubble, like a strong people set in battle array. Before them the people writhe in pain. All faces are drained of color. They run like mighty men. They climb the walls like men of war. Everyone marches in formation, and they do not break ranks. They do not push one another. Uh, everyone marches in his own column. Though they lunge between the weapons, they are not cut down. They run to and fro in the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. They enter at the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For the strong is the one who executes his word. Listen. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can Endure it. And again, the day of the Lord is a reference to the judgment of God that's coming upon the whole world during the tribulation period. And I believe what Joel is talking about corresponds to the locust judgment that, uh, that is involved with the fifth trumpet judgment recorded in Revelation chapter 9. So turn there, because I believe Joel is prophesying about this very event that we read about in Revelation 9. Listen to these locusts. Listen to what God said. This is the fifth trumpet judgment. Revelation 9, starting in verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him, so this star was an angel, to him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. 
They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die and death will flee from them. The shape of the locust was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and uh, there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men for five months, and they had a king over them. The angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Now, uh, the writer to the Proverbs helps us out here. People say, well, are, are these literal locusts? They have a king, don't they? It says here in Revelation 9. In the book of Proverbs, it says the locusts have no king. So it tells us that this is not the, your ordinary locusts. We know that these are demons who come up from the bottomless pit, a chamber probably in uh, what Peter calls Tartarus. What is that? Uh, only time that that Greek word is used in the New Testament and we have to go into classical Greek to find out what the meaning is. And the meaning in classical Greek is the lowest Hades, the lowest part of Hades. Now, Hades is the place where people go who, who reject Christ, at least after Jesus has come. There's two compartments. There still is. One is a place of torment. The other is Abraham's bosom, a place of, of paradise and comfort, separated by a giant gulf like the Grand Canyon. Until Jesus died on the cross, we know that all believers went to Abraham's bosom. So David and Moses and, uh, you know, Isaiah and all these Old Testament saints who died believing in a coming Messiah, they went into Abraham's bosom where they were comforted, but they were in prison because Jesus had not died for their sins yet. When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says before he ascended back to his father, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth, let the captives free, opened the prison doors, and when he ascended, he led all of these into heaven. Paul the Apostle says, now for a believer who dies, we go immediately into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So today, Abraham's bosom is empty. But the other side, which we learn about in Luke 16, remember the story of the rich uh, man who was a very wicked guy and the, the diseased beggar named Lazarus, uh, who was obviously a believer. And the rich man died and was carried by the angels into the torment side of Hades, whereas uh, when Lazarus died, a believer, he was taken into Abraham's bosom. We know that all the people who die right now, uh, not believing in Christ, go into this site of torment. And they are kept there until the great white throne judgment. When they are resurrected, they stand before Jesus. They have their day in court. Just let me stand. This must be a mistake that I'm in this horrible place. I know that uh, if I can just stand before God and plead my case, surely he'll know what a good guy was and let me into heaven. They don't realize that the case has already been decided. It was decided in the Garden of Eden where man was declared guilty. All they're going to do when they stand before Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment is just going to be a time of sentencing. He is going to sentence them all to hell, but the degree of punishment in hell will be determined by 
how much wickedness they walked in while they were on the earth. But um, these are demonic creatures. This is one of the most bizarre passages in the Bible. That for five months, death is going to take a holiday. People will be stung by these demonic creatures. It will be so painful that they will want to die. And, and I would imagine some of them will take guns, try to blow their brains out. But their spirit will not leave their bodies. They will be forced to remain on the earth to suffer this agony. Now, there are some very, very difficult days ahead for humanity. Why won't you just humble yourself? Get your life right with me, God is saying. I want to spare you from all that. I get no death, excuse me, I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked. I don't get any pleasure for sending anyone to hell. My heart is to save, to have mercy, and so on. Anyways, back to Exodus 10. These locusts were literal in this plague uh, upon Egypt. Verse 15. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened and they ate uh, every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout the land of Egypt, all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. In other words, get rid of these locusts. Okay, uncle, I give. I'm sorry I've sinned, right? Verse 18, so he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. Once again, Pharaoh said the right words. I have sinned against the Lord. But he didn't follow them up with the right actions. And God knew his heart. He knew his heart was still hard. His words were insincere. And so God continued to harden Pharaoh's heart all the more. Because he knew he was only trying to escape the consequences of his actions he wasn't really sorry for the sin itself. So a lot of people like that. They're sorry that what they did brought consequence. I think every criminal in jail is sorry. Sorry they got caught. Not necessarily sorry for what they did. Okay? But it's like that. Human nature is like that. We do certain things. Sin has built into it consequences. When those consequences come, God wants the consequences to actually uh, be the thing that kind of, um, I don't know, I guess you could say beat us into submission, okay? Uh, you know, uh, it, it's a hard thing uh, for those who strive with their maker. It's hard. The way the transgressor is hard because sin will beat you up. And God is saying, you know, what is it going to take? Of course, he knows. But it's like, you know, how much do you have to reap the consequences before your heart is tenderized and you get right with me? Well, Pharaoh wasn't ready. And so that brings us to the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. This plague was directed at the greatest of all of the gods of Egypt, Amun-Ra, the sun god. 
Let me just read to you just a short thing from one historian that will help you understand what God was doing and how devastating this plague was, uh, even above the others. He said the Egyptians served Horus, the god of the sunrise, Aten, the god of the round midday sun, and Atum, the god of the sunset. But the supreme deity in their national pantheon was Amun-Ra, who said, I am the great god who came into being of myself, he who has no opponent among the gods. See, listen, this is what they believed. Amun-Ra was their greatest deity, who said, I made myself, and among all the gods that ever lived, there is none like me. The author says the Egyptians believed that this solar deity was their creator. Every morning, the, uh, the rising of the sun in the east reaffirmed the, the life-giving power of Amun-Ra. Sunset represented death and the underworld, but the rise of Amun-Ra offered uh, the hope of resurrection. For the Egyptians, it was a matter of faith that the, that the eternally rising sun could never be destroyed. Like most Egyptians, Pharaoh was a sun worshiper. More than that, he was regarded as the son of Ra, the personal embodiment of the solar deity. Egypt's king was Egypt's god and the incarnation of Amun-Ra. He maintained the cosmic order. So guys, when God poured darkness upon Egypt, not only did he pour it upon their greatest god, but the son of their greatest god, Pharaoh, because they considered Pharaoh a god, the son of Amun-Ra. And so you, you understand what God is doing. He is completely destroying their false gods, completely destroying them. But listen to me. It was more than that. This was no ordinary darkness. This was a darkness unlike any they had ever seen before. Listen, a darkness that could be felt. And because of that, I'm assuming that this darkness was a supernatural, demonic darkness that God poured out on a nation, listen, that loved darkness rather than light because its deeds were evil. Do you see what's happening in our nation? As we walk with God, God protected us against our enemies. He stood with us. Um, as we honored him and obeyed him, he blessed our lives as he said he would to any nation that followed him and honored him and so on. But as we have gotten more and more into darkness as a nation, we are seeing more and more of the demonic element manifesting itself. It's really amazing. As I watch the news, and I try to keep an eye on this, because I'm of the mindset that the more people in our country open the door to the occult, the more it allows demonic, the demonic to enter into our nation. And it's having a profound effect on us spiritually, morally, and so on. And I believe it's all leading up to the ultimate demonic experience where the Antichrist tells people that if they follow him, they can become like God. The Antichrist is going to be a God. He is going to come with supernatural powers and abilities and supernatural wisdom and so on. The whole world will follow after him. But I believe that his religion, which the false prophet will spearhead, is going to be the same religion that started in the Garden of Eden where Satan promised Eve 
that she would not surely die perpetual life, eternal life, but that she would become as God. And I believe that lie, which started in its embryonic state in the Garden of Eden, that lie has had 6,000 years to grow and mature. We see it now throughout the entire world, in Hinduism, in the New Age movement, and other different cults and religions that basically believe that we are really gods, we just don't realize it. The problem is we need to be enlightened to that reality. What did Satan tell Eve? Eve, your problem is you're not seeing properly. You need the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge. You need to be enlightened to your true position as God. And I believe the Antichrist is going to come with that very message. That uh, those who rejected the love of the truth that they might be saved... God is going to send strong delusion that they might believe the lie. That lie that started in the Garden of Eden. Very specific lie. The whopper that has destroyed more lives, more people, and will find its, its ultimate fruition in the days of the Antichrist and so on. But um, I believe this is a prelude to what's coming in the future. If you read the book of Revelation, there is a plague that God pours out in the world. Again, a plague of darkness. And this is a demonic darkness because only a demonic darkness could have properties that would make it a smothering, oppressive kind of darkness that could be felt. What would it be like to be in that kind of darkness? We know that God is light, right? 1 John 1, 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So I'm assuming what's going on here is God is withdrawn. You know, the Bible says in him we live and move and have our being. Even unbelievers you know, exist in an environment or an atmosphere, if you will, of the presence of God. Even unbelievers can know joy, some joy, some peace, and love, and so on. These are all attributes of God, who causes his sun to, to shine in the fields of the, of the good and of the evil, and his rain to fall in the fields of the righteous and the unrighteous. It's what the theologians call a common grace, that God allows some of himself to be understood and... Um, and felt or experienced by even unbelievers. Do you know what hell really is? It is the total absence of God. We talk about absolute zero. What is absolute zero? The total absence of all heat. Hell is the total absence of all that is God, which means there is no light at all in hell. It is nothing but a darkness you can feel forever and ever, where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth forever. This is a little preview right here, right here, that God, it seems, withdraws himself completely from Egyptian culture, that all that is left is darkness, because God is light. He withdraws himself completely. All that is left is this smothering, oppressive, demonic darkness that can be felt, except one place where there was light. Where was that? Verse 23. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. We don't know, guys, if this was because God spared them the plague of darkness, or rather, and this is what I believe, that in the land of Goshen, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory, dwelt among his people. God is light. As you read the book of Revelation, and you read about the new city, the new Jerusalem, that comes down from God, where we're all going to live, the new heavens, the new earth. It talks about the earth being lit and the new city 
being lit. There's no sun. There's no moon in the new creation. But only the glory of God lights the city and the planet. The Shekinah glory of God. So I kind of believe that God was just had withdrawn from Egypt and was just hanging out in Goshen, okay, with his people, because there was light there. But to put this in kind of a, I don't know, apply it, you know, one pastor said this, and I quote, he said, is there light in your home? Is the presence of the Lord there? Are your kids being taught to walk in his ways? Is your home a place where you love each other and pray together where things are right? Let us live in the light. Let us walk in the light. Let us be obedient to that which God has illuminated for you and for me, end quote. In other words, walking in his truth and so on. Verse 24. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. I can just hear Pharaoh saying, Mo, can you work with me? I'm giving in all over the place. Can you work with me a little bit? Moses says, no way. Our God told us this is what we need to do. No compromise. No cutting deals. He says, we go. Our kids go. All of our livestock goes. Not a hoof is going to be left here. That's the deal. Not a hoof should be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve. We don't know, we don't know what the Lord is going to require of us in the way of sacrifices. He may want us to sacrifice all our lives. So we don't know. It's not until we get there that we're going to understand what the Lord wants. Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. Well, that seems to contradict verse 8 uh, of chapter 11, where Moses did appear before Pharaoh again and had a face-to-face -face meeting. And it says in verse 8 of chapter 11, and he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. And also then in chapter 12, verse 31, we read, Then he, Pharaoh, called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise, go out from among my people, both you and the children of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Seems like a contradiction, okay? Pharaoh says, The day that you stand before, if I ever see your face again, I'm going to kill you. Moses says, Hey, fine with me, pal. You'll never see my face again. All right, a little paraphrase. Um, what's going on? Well, the commentators have several explanations, some of them complicated. Uh, you know what, let's keep it simple. It could be that what Moses was saying to Pharaoh, and several commentators brought this up, was that this would be the last time that Pharaoh would see Moses' face with regard to Moses offering him an opportunity to repent. That God's judgments would stop is the idea. That the next time he, it wasn't that he would never see his face again, he would never see his face in mercy again. That the next time he saw his face, it would only to be, only to be to proclaim unavoidable judgment is the idea. That's a, a good explanation, I think. But 
Uh, there's another one that I think is maybe more to the point. I think I lean to this one. It could be that Moses responded to Pharaoh in the heat of the moment. You know, we put these people on pedestals and think that everything they do must be of God, was godly, okay? It could be that Moses just reacted in the moment, in the flesh, right? When Paul got smashed in the mouth by one of the soldiers as he was standing before the Sanhedrin, and what did he say? It, you know, the high priest said, uh, didn't like what something Paul said, and so he said to the soldier, smash him in the mouth. Bam, smash him in the mouth. Paul didn't see it coming because his eyesight wasn't so good. And Paul said to the person in front of him, may God strike you, you whitewashed wall. Well, the soldiers said, hey, that's the high priest. You talked that way to the high priest? Paul said, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know it was the high priest. I shouldn't be talking that way to the leaders of our people, so on, that kind of thing. Men and women of God can lose their cool, okay? I think Moses just kind of in the heat of the moment, Pharaoh said, don't ever let me see your face again or I'll kill you. Moses, that's fine with me. You'll never see my face again. But it wasn't that way, okay? Moses did see Pharaoh a couple more times, and um, it wouldn't be the last time uh, that Moses would lose his cool and uh, act out of emotion. Remember now, as he is leading them in the wilderness, the children of Israel, at one point, he gets so angry at their continual murmuring that, uh, you know, we want water, we want water. You left us out here to, you know, let us out here to die in the wilderness. And so he gets so angry, he goes in before the Lord and says, Lord, I'm tired of these people. All they do is complain. Moses, they're just thirsty. Go out and strike the rock again, and I'll give, or speak to the rock, I should say, and it'll bring forth water. Because he struck the rock earlier. God says, strike the rock. This was, you know, 40 years earlier. He put up with this for 40 years, right? So initially they were thirsty. God says, strike the rock. Take your rod, strike the rock. It brought forth water. Forty years of their murmuring and complaining. Finally, they're complaining again about no water. He goes into God. God says, just speak to the rock. It'll bring forth water. They're just thirsty, Moses. So what did Moses do? He goes out there and says, you rebels, must we, you know, bring, must we, must we bring water again for you? And he struck the rock a second time. That was the thing that Moses, that God says, Moses, not good, son. Okay, you messed up a very, uh, a very good metaphor. The rock represents Christ. Christ need only to be stricken once, smitten once, for salvation or the living water to flow. We just speak to Jesus now to receive eternal life. He did the work. He was smitten, right? When Moses struck the rock the second time, he messed up God's uh, very good uh, illustration. And Moses, God says, Moses, you cannot lead my people into the promised land. Those who represent me must represent me properly. I'm very nervous for people who do not represent God properly. Most of them are pastors, teachers, evangelists that we see in our society today. They are not representing God properly. James said in chapter 3, verse 1, Don't hurry into the teaching ministry, brethren knowing that we shall incur the more strict judgment. In other words, God's going to hold us more accountable because we knew the word, we were teachers of the word, and yet we were not representing God properly or teaching his word faithfully. I would not want to be in the shoes on the day of judgment of some of these televangelists who I don't believe many of them are even saved, who get on TV acting like great men of God, doing a great work for God, now send your money in. We need your money because if we don't get your money this month, the precious work of God that we're doing will come to an end. Good. If it depends on my 10 bucks, it ought to come to an end. It's not of God. God doesn't even need my money. 
The cattle on the thousand hills belongs to him. The earth belongs to him in all its fullness. When people make God out to be a pauper, that his work depends on their generosity, look out. And then on top of it, some little widow on a fixed income sends her last 10 bucks in to this charlatan. And he's driving a, you know, a Mercedes or whatever, living in a palatial mansion. And she can't even buy food that week because she's trusted he's a man of God and she wants to invest in his ministry. I wouldn't want to be in their shoes on the day of judgment. Anyways, it's a very serious thing when a person hardens their heart to the grace of God. We see it in Pharaoh's life, but we also see it all around us in our day. I'll end with something Warren Worsby said I thought was very good. He said, and I quote, The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is a warning to all of us. If the sinful human heart doesn't respond by faith to God's word, it cannot be transformed by the grace of God. So if a person hardens their heart to God's word, then no matter what God does, it usually will not soften their heart. Instead, it will become harder and harder the longer it resists God's truth. No matter how often God may send affliction, it will only provide more disobedience. In the last days, when God sends his terrible judgments on the world, Revelation chapter 6 through 16, people will curse God and continue in their sins, but they will not repent. There will be a whole world full of men and women like Pharaoh who will behold God's judgment and still not repent. And one of the big ones you can read is Revelation 16, verses 9 and 11. How after a, a particularly horrific judgment, it says the people would not repent of their sins and their wickedness and their sexual immorality. Their hearts had become so hard, no matter what God did at this point, wasn't going to change them. Of course, if you get to that point, there's no more hope. You've hardened your heart so much, you'll never come to Christ. None of you have come to that point. I know most of you are saved. But anyone who's coming to church and wants to hear God's word, I know their heart is still soft. If, a, if people say, I've had this over the years where a person will come to me and say, Pastor, I'm, and, they're, and they're frantic. They're beside themselves. And I say, what's wrong? What's wrong? I've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I say, well, no, you haven't. What do you mean, no, I haven't? I know I, yes, I have. I've committed the unpardonable sin. No, you haven't. How can you be so sure? Because you're here worried about it. If you had committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, your heart would be so hard, you wouldn't care about the things of God. You wouldn't care about coming judgment. You would dismiss, have dismissed all of that years ago. The fact that you're still worried about it indicates your heart is still tender. And that's what Worsby ends with a couple of scriptures. He says, Hebrews 3, verse 7, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, because you may not get a tomorrow. And then Hebrews 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Better to repent now. Get your life right with Jesus right now. And so guys, that ends the account of the first nine plagues. There is one plague left, the death of the firstborn. This plague is so unique and so important, really, that I'd like to look at it separately next week, especially because uh, it leads directly to the Exodus. And so I'd like to look at both of those together as we continue on in our study in uh, Exodus. So we'll pick it up next time with plague number 10. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of mercy and grace. And even through these 10 plagues, 
you could have brought one big plague and wiped everybody out in Egypt all at one time. But the fact that you divided up your judgment into ten judgments and then spaced them over the course of about a year and a half from the first one to the last one was your mercy in operation, giving the people of Egypt time to think about their rebellion, to soften their hearts, and to get right with you. I don't know how many actually did that. Maybe not many, but I think some maybe did. I know Pharaoh did not. And Pharaoh becomes an illustration or an object lesson to everybody of a person that had everything. He gained the entire world. He was the king of the greatest nation on earth at that time. In essence, he was the, the king of the entire world. And yet he lost his own soul. And Father, give grace to everyone, especially our loved ones who are fighting against you, who have hardened their hearts, who refuse to bow the knee to Jesus. Lord, we pray that you will bring upon them whatever you have to to break them, because we know you won't do any more than you have to do to break them because you love them. But Lord, don't go easy on them. <laughs> Lord, whatever you have to do to bring them to their knees in brokenness, surrender, and the, and the acceptance of Jesus Christ into their lives. Father, before it's too late, we pray that you would bring that upon them right now. And Father, we thank you that you have opened our eyes and uh, we will escape the wrath to come. You'll rapture your church. We'll be in heaven enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb and then we will return with you, Revelation 19, on white horses to establish the kingdom with you. And Lord, we thank you. We look forward to that day. Until then, Lord, give us grace and keep blessing these studies in Jesus' name. Amen.